Hello and welcome back. Um, hello to everyone in the room and hello to everybody online and also hello to Stockwell who will be watching this later on today. It is so wonderful. Honestly, I'm still on the high. I'm sorry for those who are watching online. I'm just going to rub it in for a moment. I'm still on the high of being in the same room as you all. It's just so exciting. I love it. Um, my name is Anna, if we've never met before, and we're going to continue our series on Revelation, um, the unseen reality. We had a little pause for Pentecost last week, but we are back with a letter to the church in Sardis. And as I promise you, it is as punchy as the other ones have been. Um, as I've been reading uh, Revelation, I've taken great comfort um, from when, if you, if you read the book, John, who's receiving the rest of this revelation of like beasts and with weddings and brides and there's swords coming out of tongues, he keeps on asking questions of like, like who's that? Like, what's, what's that mean? And I'm basically reading it going, what the heck? So I'm feeling thankful that he's asking that question because, I mean, he walked with Jesus and he's led a church for many, many years and he even wrote some of the New Testament and he's asking questions. So I feel a lot better. Um, and you can join me and John in the club of asking fun questions. Um, we're actually looking for a social sec if anyone's interested. Um, anyway, but as, as well as questions, it's also brought this churning discomfort, hasn't it? And that is what Revelation is meant to do. The whole point of it is to point to this unseen reality, reminding ourselves that there is more to life than what we see on the surface. The undercurrents of secularism, the seduction of comfort, the idols of power, sex, and money, all of them calling our hearts to worship them instead of Jesus. So yes, it's uncomfortable. And this is a wake-up call to us where we've succumbed to those unseen forces, pulling our hearts, our bodies, our words away from worshipping Jesus, so that we end up being just an impotent church, a Christians by name only, going through the motions of church without form and without power. And we will suffer with the same sickness of the city if we go with the tide of the city. And we won't be able to show an alternative reality. So it's just another light-hearted Sunday. <laughs> And anyway, a wake-up call is exactly what this letter to the church in Sardis is. And I've asked Tim Dudas, our wonderful sound man, to come um, and depart, to leave his station and come and read us the letter. So uh, let's give him a big round of applause. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who hold the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name that the person, of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Amen. Let's give him another round of applause. He's a popular one. So let's settle in and work our way through this passage. Um, and let's start at the beginning. If you've missed our talks um, so far, basically we're looking at the seven letters that, um, that, that Jesus writes to the churches in the area. 
that Paul, um, that kind of John sends his letter to. Um, so they are letters, they're written to real people in real situations, and they're prophetic words, kind of God speaking into their situation, and they're, um, I can't even say this word, ap- ap- apocalyptic, right? There we go. Thank you very much. Which means unveiling and revealing. And essentially the main thing that John is um, interested in revealing in the whole of this book is Jesus. He's interested in um, revealing Jesus. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revealing of Jesus. So to Sardis, um, Jesus is being revealed. And who is Sardis? Now, here's a picture of where Sardis was. It was a city built on a hill, a hill that provided, as you can tell from the picture, a natural fortress. And this city was never actually taken by a military army because it was placed on that hill. It was a wealthy city, and so was the church. In fact, of all the churches that these letters are written, this is the wealthiest church, and it's also the largest church. Um, numerically. And unlike all the other churches in the area, this church wasn't experiencing persecution and suffering. There was quite a lot of activity going along, along, along in this church. It was a very active church, a very busy church. Probably not the type of church that we would describe as dead, like Jesus does. In the West, when we talk about a church um, that is dead, we talk about a church that's dwindling in numbers and of size, of congregation, that the congregation's getting smaller, that they can't afford to keep going, and there's actually not that much activity. That's what we would call a dead church, right? So that's Sardis. That is who Sardis is. Um, But what, and we'll come back to them later, but who is Jesus revealing himself as? In each of the letters, Jesus reveals and describes himself as something different. And it's significant of what he reveals to that church, of why he is revealing himself in that particular way. And in this one, he says, uh, he is the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, this is one of those moments where you've got to ask some questions, haven't you? You've got to do a John and ask some questions like, what's going on? I spoke to someone the other day. I was talking about faith with them. And she was French. And she was like, the Trinity is just stupid. (laughs) It's stupid. And I dared not mention the seven spirits of God because Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one, and then one of them seven. Very confusing. She would have said very stupid. Anyway, um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of imagery that John is using in this, um, in this letter, or, or Jesus is using right the way through the letter, and linguistic tools that the, the readers would have been very familiar with. And the use of numbers is often used in kind of Hebrew literature and, um, with kind of like a different type of meaning. And the meaning of number seven, which has been used a lot in the book of Revelation, is a word of completeness, of perfection. So when Jesus is standing there holding the seven spirits, what he's saying is this is the spirit of perfection. It's a reminder of his divinity, that he is the holy divine one who's standing before them. And the seven stars is not literally seven stars. They represent the whole complete cosmos, the whole of creation. And it was normal for people in that time to consult the stars and the planets and the movements to kind of ask for direction. And the Roman emperors, they would have pictures of the stars around any kind of statue of them because it was a sign of their cosmic powers. But the stars aren't surrounding Jesus, they're in his hand. This is a statement that the stars don't run your life. Jesus controls the stars. The stars don't have authority. Jesus does. And the summary would be this. This is an awe-filled vision of Jesus. A cosmic authority and power is emanating from him. There is no kind of buddy Jesus going on here. The pal who makes me feel warm and fuzzy, there's like a fear about him. 
And don't get me wrong, like my friendship with Jesus is the most important of my life. But intimacy with him is enjoyed, is made even more significant when we remember that he is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was before all things were created through him and by him and for him. That is who we say, hail King Jesus. And then it makes even more difference when he calls us friend. And it's exactly the lordship of Jesus that this church had forgotten. And it's therefore, and when we forget our lord, the lordship of Jesus, it's easier to ignore what he says, to ignore him, to disregard him. And that's exactly what had happened in Sardis. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Do you might notice there's no encouragement in this letter. Like in all the other letters, there is encouragement. There is no encouragement to Sardis. Absolute burn. And part of the reason I think that is, is, you know, if we read Matthew 6, Jesus says um, three times, he says, if you receive your praise from people, then you've received your reward in full. And once he says, you will receive no reward from my father if you live like that. This church has had a good reputation and they've received their reward in full. They've had a lot of praise from others. It's wealthy, it's growing, it's active. What's not to love Jesus? What more do you want from your church? My goodness, if that happened in the UK, we'd be like, that's an alive church. That's successful. But Jesus looks at it and says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I know your deeds. I see you. I know your deeds. You've not fooled me with your reputation. I'm not impressed by the show that you put on. You can lie to others. You can lie to yourself, but you cannot lie to me. You are dead. Imagine if that was addressed to us. Imagine if we had the reputation of being alive, but you were dead, and you'd receive this letter. Last weekend, for the first time in seven months, I saw my nephew and niece. And um, their, their kind of thing is waking me up. Um, the backstory is my parents and my sister are terrified of ever coming into my room because apparently I'm not that pleasant on first being woken up. So they learned that if, um, they, when my niece was born, if they just kind of popped a baby on my bed, that I was a lot warmer as I woke up. So kind of for the last eight years of her life, that's been her thing. And then my nephew came along five years ago. And whereas my niece would wake me up with kind of kisses, he likes to jump on me, which kind of added a whole new dynamic to the thing. And when I arrived, they were so excited about waking me up the next morning. Because they've been talking to me on um, FaceTime, like, oh, when you come visit, we're going to wake you up. They've been talking to my mum about it in the car, we're going to wake up Auntie Anna. They told me just before they, um, <laughs> it was quite terrifying actually, kind of like, I was saying goodnight to them, giving them a little kiss, nice and calm. We're going to wake you up in the morning. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, in the morning, I was just shattered. I was so tired. And, I, and they came in, and three times they came in, and they were just persistently jumping up and down on me. And they even took my duvet away, which was a new thing. And in the end, they got so exasperated with me. My nephew just looked at me, and he said, Auntie Anna, will you wake up? I want to play with you. And I was just like, oh, yeah, they want me to wake up because it's funny, but they, what they really want to do is wake me up so they can spend time with me, so they can be with me, that they've actually missed the connection and they wanted to be with me. And this letter feels brutal, but Jesus wants to wake them up because he misses them. He's, they've lost their connection with him. They are dead and they've let go of the source of life. And he's saying, wake up, wake up, wake up. I can't interact with a sleeping church. I can't have a relationship with a dead church. And that is what the church had come to, Jesus. Sleeping and dead to him, no relationship, no connection. Everything um, had, had kind of gone from that. 
And I was talking to Zach Gain, who's um, part of our um, church, and also Maxwell, who's part of our community. And I said I would mention their names because they kind of helped me write this. Um, but they were giving me insights. And Max, um, basically, he read the passage, and his first reaction was just to put it down, was just like, well, without Jesus, this is all meaningless, isn't it? And I just thought, that you've got the essence of this. Without Jesus, it is all meaningless. Our faith is dead. Let's give up and just go home now. The church in Sardis was asleep to the cosmic Jesus, and they had become a mirror to the city they lived in. The reason they weren't experiencing persecution and suffering is because they were just like everybody else. The same view of success, the same wealth, status, and comfort, including their sexual practices. They had adopted the same sexual practices as the culture around them. And yes, sex comes up again. And people say, oh, the church is so obsessed with sex. I think humans are obsessed with sex. And to be honest, we haven't spoken about sex enough as a church, which means we're not obsessed enough about sex. So we've let the culture disciple the church. And that's where our teaching has been incomplete. And we acknowledge that. And one of the areas where we're in danger of kind of falling into the trap of seeing things, having the same cultural attitude, is um, towards singleness. And I've been um, convicted recently that I haven't spoken enough about singleness, and it's partly because of my ego, that I didn't want to become known as the single woman in leadership. I just wanted to be known as a leader. But by not speaking about the, the value of singleness, we've ignored a significant aspect of discipleship for a large percentage of this church who are single. And not, by not speaking about singleness, we haven't seen that, spoken about how the church and the Bible sees singleness as fundamentally different to the culture around us. Singleness is not something to be pitied. It is not, something, it's not a statement of independency or self-sufficiency. It is a high calling. It is a picture of what will happen in the future. The one day there is only going to be one marriage, and it's not going to be between a man and a wife. It's going to be between the, Bi- um, the Bible, <laughs> the, the church, and, um, and Jesus. And, and a single person, their life tells the story that Jesus is enough, and that's the thing that they're longing for. Whether it's for a season or for a lifetime, that's what your life tells. That's the story your life tells as a single person. That our singleness liberates us, like Paul, to be wholly devoted to Jesus. And when viewed like that, it can't be seen as dead time, just waiting until you get married. And I say that as someone who wants to be married. Jesus is my reason for living, and that doesn't change depending on my relationship status. Instead, it defines my relationship status. The church in Sardis had had the same aspirations and practices as the city. They swam with the tide of the city and became a mirror image of Sardis, and so became impotent. The message of the gospel was not complete in them. It was a church of compromise, mediocrity, and self-sufficiency. They didn't need Jesus. They were wealthy enough. They were safe. They were at ease. They were dead. And Jesus says, wake up. Come out of that tomb of death. Strengthen what is good. Not all your activities that you're doing are wrong, but they become devoid of meaning. Strengthen your worship, your teaching, your prayer life, your gatherings. Remember the gospel that you received, the kindness of Jesus poured out upon you that he was crucified and is now alive and holds the power of life and death. Remember the spirit who was given to you, the complete perfect spirit, Jesus' gift to you. Receive him afresh. Hold fast, hold fast, build your life as a foundation built on Jesus, centered around him so that everything revolves around him. Repent, admit there's a problem, and and, and receive the invitation back. 
And then he says, but if you do not wake up, if you choose to continue going the way you're going, I will come to you like a thief, and you'll not know what time I will come to you. Now, this image would have resonated with Sardis, because as I said before, no military power had ever, no military army had ever managed to penetrate the walls. However, it had fallen twice. The first time was one single climber scaling the wall and getting in unseen. The second time was 15 men getting in behind the city walls and opening the gate from within. So this phrase kind of wake up isn't simply about waking up from a sleep. It carries the meaning of be watchful, be alert. And Sardis' history would tell them that they were at their most vulnerable when they were not watchful, when they were at ease and comfortable. And Jesus is saying, if you continue in that way, if you continue not being watchful on guard of how the city is forming you and shaping you, then you will make me an enemy. That is a huge thing to say. I will become your enemy. Because Jesus won't let a church carry his name church in name only. It will crumble from within. And it's a stark warning. If you let go of me, I'll honor your decision. And, um, and you'll make me um, an enemy. And yet, there are a few people. There's a little bit of hope, just a tiny smidge. And yet, there are a few people in Sardis who had not soiled their clothes. When I heard that, I laughed at that because it's funny. And I have the, the kind of the sense of humor of a child. <laughs> they were people in the church who had not compromised. They had resisted the spirit of the city, and therefore they stood out and they were beautiful. They were magnificent. They stood out as people in white. They were people who were alive in their faith. And when you meet people who are alive in their faith, there's something compelling about them, isn't there? So what does an alive Christian look like? We know what a dead Christian looks like, compromise, mediocrity, and comfort. But what does an alive Christian look like? And, and Daryl Johnson, who we've been, um, kind of a commentary we've been looking at to inform this series, writes nine vital signs for an alive church, what to look out for for a living church. And I thought I'd just copy them wholesale because they're pretty comprehensive. So the first one is um, confessing Jesus as Lord. Hudson Taylor had it, said it perfectly when he said, Christ is either Lord of all or he's, Lord, he's not Lord at all. Allegiance to Jesus defines all other affections, our family, our friends, our nation, our, um, to our relationship to other authority figures, our lives, our possessions, our money. His lordship touches everything. How far does his lordship extend in your life? Are there any no-go areas? Calling God Father. Paul talks about the spirit of adoption in us, allowing us to say, call God Abba Father. And Abba was a kind of like an affectionate dad kind of name. People who are alive in faith know the security that God knows them as a father, sees them as a, um, a son or a daughter. They know what he says about them. His affection towards them defines them. It defines how they see themselves and how they see others. People who are alive know the security of being loved by the Father. It's a sign of someone being alive in their faith. Do you feel secure in the Father's love? The fruit of the Spirit. An alive church will manifest the fruits of the Spirit. Love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. I have to read these. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Well done, those people who knew it. I didn't. Do those mark us out? Are those the attributes that mark us out? Unity. 
When there's a, a church that is alive, there'll be a gravitational pull towards unity. The pull will be Jesus Christ. It won't be uniformity, but the dividing barriers of ethnicity, education, economic wealth, political persuasion will not stop us from being family and uniting around Jesus. The question, have we gone for uniformity over unity? Compassion, fundamental to the ministry of Jesus, is to reach outside of people who are in the in crowd, to move towards people who are suffering and oppressed. And I want to pause here just for a moment and just um, consider that perhaps those people in Sardis, who kind of the, the, the ones who hadn't compromised, perhaps there was a group within the church and they were reaching out to the marginalized in their community. They were reaching out to the oppressed in Sardis. Maybe their presence and their activity in the church made the rest of the church feel good by association. Maybe that lulled everyone else into a false sense of security because that their faith was alive too, but because by association they knew these people. A couple of years ago, I was boasting about our local mission work to my hairdresser, and I felt convicted that I hadn't been to a single project that I was talking about. How many of us feel good about coming to KXC because we know there's a good work going on somewhere in the local community, and therefore we feel good by association? I thought I'd just throw that one out there because the letter hadn't been challenging enough. (laughs) Reproduction and growth. Um, Growth is a sign of life. Honestly, my my plants die. You can tell they're dying because they're shriveled up and um, crumpled up. But But sign of life will be growth and reproduction. And it's not just numerical growth, bums on seats, people, Christians moving to the area, so boosting our numbers. It's the replication of the life of Jesus in people. People coming to faith and people, people being transformed into his image. When was the last time you spoke to someone about Jesus who didn't know him? Are you more like him this year than you were last year? Is that being reproduced in your life? Is his character and nature being reproduced in your life? Emotion. This one surprised me, but when I thought about it, I think, yeah, it's true. And a live church will express emotion. It's different to emotionalism. And I found this quote from um, Campbell Morgan. It says, I am alive, and because I am alive, I weep, I sing, I laugh, I mourn. It is the dead who have no tears, no laughter, no music, no mourning. I am alive, and because I am alive, I weep, I sing, I laugh, I mourn. It is the dead who have no tears, no laughter, no music, no mourning. How connected to your emotions are you? The desire to be holy. Revelation refers to those people clothed in white to symbolize their holiness, their purity, and a live church will be moving towards purity. What's your direction of travel towards holiness? Is it towards holiness or is it moving away? And finally, a willingness to die. A willingness to lose our lives for him, to embrace ridicule, rejection, and persecution, to spend our time, our money, our gifts on his kingdom, to pour, out, pour them out extravagantly in response to his extravagant love and generosity. It does every day belong to Jesus, and would you willingly embrace ridicule, rejection, and persecution for him? And if you're thinking, Anna, my goodness, you lost me on the confession of Jesus as Lord. Well, welcome to the club again. That's the whole point. You can't follow Jesus and be self-sufficient. Our discipleship is a bit like a water skier. When you're holding onto the rope, you're traveling and being pulled along by the power of the boat. But when you let go of it, you flop in the water. You can't do it when you're cut off from him. It's the spirit that gives life. We don't make ourselves worthy, he does. 
We are quite simply dead when we disconnect from the source of life. And what should shake us about this letter particularly is that this church had a reputation of being alive. It had the appearance of life. Large, a good reputation, wealthy, busy, active. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because by comparison, we at KXC, we're a large church. We've got a good reputation-ish. <laughs> by comparison to other churches, we're wealthy. We're active, we're busy. And none of that is wrong. But they're not the metrics of an alive church. They're the metrics of an alive church. And we could so easily sit back and enjoy this building and allow a good reputation to carry us and not look underneath the surface. We need to be watchful. We need to be alert. We need to shake off complacency and self-sufficiency because a building, church attendance, and putting your hands in the air doesn't make a church alive. Last week, I caught up with um, a friend in Cornwall called Sarah. And Sarah is one of those people, she's just got story after story of like people that she's journeying with coming to faith. Like youth at a bus stop, friends who've been journeying through loss, restaurant owners. And every time I see and talk to her, is there's a new fresh story that happened yesterday or last week. It's never a few months ago or a few years ago. There's an aliveness to her faith. It just pulses out of her. She's like on this constant adventure with Jesus. And what struck me is that she's just got no shame in Jesus. There's no awkwardness when she speaks his name in any conversation. She just brings him up naturally because he's at home in her life. He's the center of her life. He's very present. And I have no doubt at times when she talks to those youth at the bus stop that they laugh at her. And she experiences mocking and rejection. But I tell you what, this letter wouldn't have been addressed to Sarah. Her faith is alive, but could it be addressed to me? Could it be addressed to us? Is the reason we don't face resistance because we go with the tide of the city? Is the reason we don't face resistance because we don't speak out about Jesus? Are we ashamed of Jesus? Maybe a bit like our kind of local mission stuff, we've delegated evangelism to a subsection or the alpha course. That's where it happens, and it makes us feel good that it's happening, but it doesn't have to be us doing it. And so many of us are out of practice of, of being able to talk about Jesus to people who don't know him. And Damalola has been working on some materials with Lois for the hubs. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> um, <laughs> about how we share our faith. Did you communicate that bit? Not yet. Sure. Lovely. <laughs> that was a shock for you, wasn't it? But we do want to talk, we, me, we've been talking about how we've been conspiring about how can we equip people who long to share their story of faith with people but just don't even know how to start. Maybe you've lost confidence or practice. Email Damalola for more information. So I finished writing this talk and when I read it through I thought, my goodness, how can I go back and put something encouraging in? How can I just give it a lighter tone? And I just couldn't. I couldn't. There was nothing I could do. And I thought, my goodness, everyone's going to leave hating me and they're going to leave grumpy like I've hit them with a stick or something because that's kind of what's happened. And then I remembered the wake-up call from my nephew and niece. And I was grumpy at being woken up because it's not a nice thing to be woken up, is it? And if, but if I'm honest, I didn't want to waste time sleeping when I could be playing with them. We have one life to live. Do you want to sleepwalk through it? 
you have one opportunity to live your life today and who honestly wants to spend this precious days going with the flow because it's too hard to push the other way? Who wants to live a life centered on yourself and protection of your own comforts? Who wants to live permanently in your comfort zones? And I'm not saying we all have to live like stories of kind of significance and, and recognition and wealth and fame and all of that, something, doing something spectacular. That's not a marker of a life well lived. Truly living is messy and it is challenging and you face opposition and you mess up and at times you want to give up and it is costly and it requires courage. But the alternative is being asleep, taking the path of least resistance, playing it safe, wasting my days on myself. And do you know what, Holy Spirit? I give you permission to jump up and down on my bed, to take off my duvet and throw water on me if necessary because I do not want to waste my life. We want to live our lives well. We want to live our lives for Jesus, right? Come and wake us up, Holy Spirit.